Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. All right. Good morning. How are we? Yes, that's the passage today. Let's do it. All right. So um, I imagine there is some people that this is like their first time in church in like years and they grew up and they have all these memories of what church was like and are like the things that they taught. And, and they're like, well, maybe they woke up. Maybe I'll just go to church today and just see, see what's going on, see how it is. And they read this and they're like, uh-huh. <laughs> Pretty much what I remember. Um, or there's the husbands who read ahead and so like that. Oh, hey, we're going to church today. Let's go. Um, I'm going to come at this from a different direction. Um, so... I, I'm a history guy. I love history. And so I'm going to come at this from a different angle entirely. I don't think this is what you think it's... I don't think it's... I do not think this is about what you think it's about. Um, I'm going to probably upset some people. I'm probably going to um, challenge some of the ways that you've looked at things. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. Um, because maybe it'll, it'll force you to read and learn. Um, and study, um, I do ask for your grace. We are a community of grace and a community of confession. And sometimes we need to confess that we disagree with each other on certain things, but that's okay. It's all right. We worship Jesus and uh, we agree that Jesus is the answer, that he is salvation, that he is the one um, who has reconciled us to God. And uh, that's the one we worship. And so there's, um, there's all these other issues um, to where if you talk to some people in this room, you'll find you'll, you'll some, things, some things that you disagree with. And you should say, that's interesting. I'm glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. And then let's talk about it some more. Um, and let's sharpen each other. So um, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God for some, uh, some wisdom, some knowledge, and uh, some grace for all of us. Um, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for letting us gather here in this place. We thank you for our family, for our community. I ask that you would build us up together that you would give us grace with each other and, uh, and, and mercy and all of the things that we need so that we can be the body of Christ. Um, we are co- a community of people that are broken in so many different ways, but our souls are anchored in you, and that's where our healing begins. And so I ask that we would search that out this morning. I ask that you would reveal some things to us that we need to hear, that every week you would challenge something, that you would shake something so that we don't become complacent in our thinking, in our beliefs, um, that you would um, once in a while just um, shake things up and force us to lean on you and lean on your understanding and to chase after you. Thank you for the privilege it is to, to teach your word. Um, thank you for the privilege it is to hear it. Thank you for preserving it for thousands of years so that we could sit here and learn about the, these early Christians who knew and followed you. We love you. In your name. Amen. Okay, so in order to go forward, we have to go back. Um, and so we're going to go back to chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to get some context because there is um, a thought, a coherent thought that leads for about 18 or 20 verses. Um, and it starts with this verse right here in verse 13. Um, and there is an awkward chapter break. It says there's a huge three, and then it starts counting again at one. And I don't think it should do that right there. And lots of scholars don't believe it should do that. These, these chapter breaks and these verse numbers were added around the 15th century by a bunch of scholars who decided they were sometimes talking about passages of Scripture. And the guys were like, which one? Which one? 
Which one? Um, and so they, someone's like, you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to come up with a system. I'm going to divide it all up into verses and then break it into chapters. And so we can just say Ephesians 4, 5. And, and we can just, that's how we'll know. We're like, oh, okay. Um, so they did, but some of these chapter breaks um, are broken into the middle of, in the middle of a thought. And, and this, this passage is broken from its previous passages, and it shouldn't be. It, it, so we're going we're gonna to reconnect it. And we're going to talk about it. But first, we're going to start here because this is the overarching subject of which we are talking about. It is submission. It is being subject. Uh, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We talked about this passage. You might need to catch up on the podcast. Um, if you've missed some stuff, you've been playing hooky for shame. Um, the word institution is the word creation, uh, human creations. When human beings, we're made in the image of God. God is a community. Human beings, when we exist, we tend to come together and be a community. We build societies. And in these societies, we have to have order. God is a God of order. There's a hierarchy uh, in the Godhead. And so there kind of ends up being one being made in the image of God. We make one in our society. Um, And so this whole passage is all about knowing your place in society, knowing who you are um, and the role that you play and how to establish the kingdom of God in your role in in this life. Um, And so questions would pop up. People would say things like, but what if you live under an oppressive government. They were under Emperor Nero. They were being hunted down and killed. And so Paul takes verses 13 to 16 and addresses this, how to respond to this. We already talked about it. Um, And other people might say, what if you live under an oppressive system like slavery or just unjust employment of some kind? Um, And what what, what should you do? How do you be subject. How do you fight for change? What do you do? And so in verse 18 through 25, he talks about this, and we talked about it two weeks ago. Um, and then you get to today's passage, and Peter like, literally connects it to this passage by using the word likewise, literally, hey, like slaves and, and like people under oppressive governments, he talks about marriage. And it's really interesting that he does that. Um, but we tend to like, you know, we, not only do we put a chapter break, but I bet a lot of your versions, versions actually have like another title that was added like three years ago that, that titles it like Husbands and Wives. Um, this is a passage about submission in oppressive systems. That's what this passage is. It's not really about anything else. That's what it is about. Um, and um, in order to fully, I think, grasp what is going on here, Before we get into this passage, we need to talk about why he would address this, why this would be looked at as some kind of oppressive system. And we're going to talk about women in the Roman empires, because oftentimes when we um, look at the context of something, it tends to make a lot more sense. Um, So let's start here. Um, Like slaves, likewise, slaves, um, like slaves, the women in the first century had no rights. They were property. They were owned by the men who were either their husbands or their father. Um, Under Jewish law, even Jewish law, a woman was just an object. That's all she was. She was a possession. She was no different from his flock, his house, his tools. She had no legal rights whatsoever. In Greek society, um, so Jewish law and then also in Greek society, a respectable woman, a woman who wanted to be respected as a just a, she's a a good woman. Um, In order to do that, you would live your life There you go. There's that. Um, You would live your life in seclusion. Um, And so a lot of women 
um, lived their entire life in seclusion. They never ventured out on their own. Um, they never, um, in it, when, anytime they wanted to go out, they would go with their husbands or with their father um, or in a group, but they would never venture out on their own. Um, most women in, in, Greek, in Greco-Roman society actually lived in sort of apartments for wives. They didn't live with their husbands most of the time. They had places that they would stay with all the other women where they would do what they considered women's stuff. And it was just this system that uh, was, was not treating men and women equal in any way, shape, or form. The men um, had the house. They would live at the house with the servants. They would be free to... Uh, the women would have to live in this in, in complete chastity, but the men would go out and sleep in with, with whoever they want. They could go down to the brothel. They could go to the bathhouse. They could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted to, and nobody cared, and it was okay, and it was the way things were, and it was accepted. Um, even worse, there was a law called patria potestas. Patria is where we got our word patriarchy. Um, this is the idea that the father of a family owned that family. Everyone in it. His wife, his sons, and his daughters. Sons, when sons came of age, um, they could marry. Usually it's when they hit puberty, 13 or so. They, they would say, okay, you, you can actually go out on your own and do your own thing now. Um, you're a freed man. Um, women, there was no age at which they were free from their fathers until the father died. Um, they were owned by their father. Their father told them what to do, where to go, um, how, to be, how to behave. Um, and this lasted their entire lives um, until, um, until the day that they met a husband and met their husband and, and married him. Uh, when they married him, there was a law called, sort of a, a bylaw called Manus, where the, the, the possession of the woman would pass from the father to the husband. Um, and so then he would own the woman. Um, now, that's how it was at the beginning of the Roman Empire. Um, this patria potestas and manus, the, the, the possession passing from the father to the new husband. Um, and eventually, around the time of Jesus, like maybe 50 years or so before Jesus, um, the laws kind of shifted. There became this trend towards something else called sign manus, which meant that the father retained his ownership of the woman, even after she was married. This meant that a father could literally initiate a divorce from his daughter's husband. He could go get her and take them all to the town square, put his arm around his daughter and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And he would divorce his daughter from the guy. I know, I know a lot of men today that would actually like to do that. Um, but this is what he would do. It was as if, for whatever reason, he just didn't like the guy, the guy didn't, his belief system was wrong, he was worshiping the wrong gods, he didn't treat her right, whatever reason, he would just go get the woman and divorce her from her husband, and, and maybe he just met a better guy, you take him over there. Um, and so, for any reason, they could do this. Now, um, this is the context into which these books are written. That is not the context we live in today. And we have to realize, when we study the scriptures, when we divorce, pun intended, um, the scripture from its context, we tend to screw stuff up. We tend to put stuff in there that doesn't really apply at all. We tend to, honestly, we tend to work a lot um, of misogyny into the text. We read it and we say, there it is. Here in the 21st century. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. But the fact is, it's not. I mean, there's things you can glean from this, but not that. That's not what it's talking about. It's not, a man doesn't own his wife. Um, 
And so within this context, you read all of this and, 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 it's, and you hear like the context in which all these laws and the political system and sign manus and, and the fight over possession of a woman by a father and a husband. Um, and sometimes you can actually see the New Testament scriptures sort of speaking to this conversation. You see, for, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, um, in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we have the, the biblical sort of discipline of submission that applies to all believers. We submit to each other, even man and wife submit to, we, to each other. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Your own husband. Not someone else's husband, not your father, not anyone else. Husbands and wives, you submit to each other. You are there for each other. Two become one. You bear each other's burdens. You, unify, you become unified in heart and soul and in mind and in body. Two become one. Your father has nothing to do with this. And so you can start to see the conversation um, that, was, that was going on in all of this. I mean, one of the reasons this conversation needed to be mixed in with other conversations about oppressive systems like slavery and oppressive governments is because society had turned marriage, this gift of God to the world, into this oppressive thing that it should not be. And the world got involved and they just changed it into this, they turned it into an ownership, a legal contract. And that's not what it's at all supposed to be. One where women were treated as possessions. And so you can see pretty easily that, that when you speak about oppressive systems in government and oppressive systems like slavery, you would also in the first century need to speak about oppressive systems like marriage in the first century because it had become oppressive. Um, the church, however, was different. So these women would walk into the church and they would see things they'd never seen before. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, it was regular. It was, it was normal to walk into a church and see a slave leading the church and his master sitting in the audience in, in, in the congregation and him, the master submitting to the slave. The gospel had did something to their relationships or they're sitting side by side worshiping Jesus together with their arms around each other. You would also see men and women sharing in responsibilities in the church. You would see sometimes women leading congregations, men leading congregations, people doing all kinds of things. Um, this completely different system that did not exist in the Roman Empire, didn't exist anywhere else in the world. And you would walk into the church and you would see it. I mean, the scriptures talk a lot about this. There's Lydia. She led a church in her home, um, the same as Nympha. She led a church in her home, um, leading in prayer and repentance and probably communion and teaching and worship. And then you have Priscilla, who worked alongside her husband to plant churches. They worked together side by side and planted these churches. Um, and then you have Chloe, who actually had enough authority in the church to say, you, you and you, I'm going to give you a letter. I'm gonna, you're going to take it to Paul for me. And he's going to bring it back to us. He's going to write us something or he's going to come visit us. And so we're going to, we have some theological issues we want to work out. And so this woman set up and she, she, she actually sent some deputies to Paul. She had authority in the church. Um, and then you have people like Junia, um, who Paul refers to her as an apostle, a female apostle. Um, I would actually, if you've been here long enough, you've heard this from me. Some of you have never heard this. You're like, what? Um, Junia, I believe, probably most likely wrote the book of Hebrews. It's not Paul. Obviously, if you look at the writing and the text, it's not um, Barnabas. He didn't have the, the background that she had. This woman fits all the qualifications. And, you, and, and people say, so why isn't her name on it? Because she's a woman and nobody would read it. And she was submitting to the situation and society of her day. 
Um, scripture is called regularly for us to sort of give up our rights and our, and our vanity to get things done, to change things in the world. Could be wrong, though. Um, and then there's, there's lots of other people we could talk about. Um, Phoebe, Deborah, Miriam, Hulda. You could throw Esther in there. All kinds of women from the beginning of time to now that in the communities of God, God has used um, to do incredible things. And so sometimes something happens, though, when you read this stuff, um, and then you read something like 1 Corinthians 14, where it says women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. I mean, it sounds pretty awful. So with everything I just talked about, with everything women did, how do you square that? With, I mean, Paul commended these women for their work in the church and for leading churches, and, and then he says this, women don't speak in the church. Perhaps there's something we're missing. Perhaps there's some context, which most of the time we don't bother looking up perhaps we should open some books and do some reading and find out what exactly is going on here because these things seem like a contradiction and that must mean something that he would write this. So if you actually study this passage and you read people like N.T. Wright and, and you, when you work with all, all kinds of evangelical scholars, um, you start to see some... Um, hold on a second, I lost my notes here. Um, you start to learn something pretty fascinating. There was a language that was called the trade language. It was Greek. It was uh, the first century when the scriptures were being written was the first time ever that there was a language that circled the globe. I mean, think about that as well, God's providence in the fact that he sent his word into the world the first time there was a universal language, like first chance he gets. So there's that. Um, and people pretty much knew the trade language of Greek, even though everyone had a home language. They were from different villages, different towns, different cities, and they all had their own languages. Um, but in order to do trade globally, you had to have sort of an empire-proclaimed um, sort of trade language. Um, and the slaves knew, knew the language because they did a lot of the trading. Um, the men knew the language. Um, travelers and immigrants and foreigners knew the language. Um, because, again, they're traveling. You have to know the trade language. So there's one group of people that didn't know the trade language. Women. Why didn't they know the trade language? Why didn't, they know, why didn't women know Greek? Um, to, to everyone, to society, it was unnecessary. Women were uneducated. Even in Jewish societies, they, they only taught women the book of Psalms, usually Psalms and Proverbs, which is why in scriptures you'll see so many women quoting the Psalms, because that's all they were taught. Um... They weren't, only the boys were really educated in everything, in scriptures. And it's the same in Roman, Greco-Roman society. Uh, the women didn't know the trade language. And so you go to these worship gatherings um, in a church, and they're sitting there, and these things are going on and on, and someone's up there speaking and teaching, and they don't understand anything, because they don't speak Greek. And they're sitting with the other women, because if you're reaching Jews in the first century, you're going to have to segregate the men and the women to sit side by side. Again, we're going to have to submit to culture, not offend them so that we can reach them and change them. And these women are listening, and they don't understand anything, and they're asking questions. They want to learn. They desire to learn, and they have questions that they want to ask, but they're disrupting everything. Okay, if, if you open your Bible and, and you actually look at the context of 1 Corinthians 14, where this passage is, the context, there'll be a little subtitle that says, Order in Worship. Because the church in Corinth was insane. People were like rolling in the aisles. They were speaking in tongues. They were healing people. They were giving up, giving prophetic speeches. There's some people are singing. There's somebody with the gift of ram's horn. And it's insane. And Paul literally, and there's women talking, asking questions because they don't speak the language. And Paul writes them this letter and he lays out how, 
let's have an orderly worship service. And he literally says, because people are coming into your service, he literally says, and they think you're drunk. <laughs> they think you're drunk. They think you're all just drunk. Um, and so why don't we have some order? And he lays out like rules for interpretations of tongues and prophecy and all these things. And he says, and he looks and he says, and women, I'm going to have to ask you to just kind of submit to the situation. It is what it is. Um, keep silent in the churches for they are, they are not permitted to speak. Um, they should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. And so their husband is charged with the duty of when they get home, teaching them everything that they're learning. And so there's this give and take. There's this, it's, it's very much like trying to work within an oppressive system or a system where those women weren't educated. And I'll have you know, the Christians were the first people in the Roman Empire to educate women and to raise them up and to give them positions of authority in the church. I mean, the women knew when they walked into the church, they would hear things like what Paul said to the church in Rome. They would hear, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And this would have been mind-blowing to them because all they've ever seen is the Jews think they're better than the Greeks. The Greeks think the Jews are barbarians. The men own the women. Um, people own the slaves. And they walk into the church and they see just this completely different thing. And they're like, I'm in. I have to be part of this. And they come to Jesus and they, they find out why it is the way it is because God doesn't look at us based on any of that. We are his children. He loves us. He died for us. He wants us to be reconciled to the Father. He wants us to know salvation and grace and mercy. And this is how the community grows. And then these women, um, they leave the church where they are being taught and fed and, and promoted in society. And, and then they go back into their homes and their husbands aren't Christians. And so what are they going to do? What do you do? Well, in the same way people were asking Paul, if we're talking about submission, what do I do about oppressive governments? And what do I do if I'm a slave? Well, what do I do if I'm a woman who, who has come to know Christ and I understand what this means and my husband doesn't? What do I do? Notice never once does Peter or Paul say, slaves, I want you to rise up, kill your masters and run. He never says, get up in their faces and tell them you're not the boss of me. He never tells this to anybody. You know what he, you know what he does? He gives them this instrument of discipline called submission and says, I've got something for you. It's something you can do. It's something that will change people. I mean, let's look at, let's look at the passage. I guess we're finally here. Um, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He, he's saying, you don't, even, you don't even need to get up in his face and talk about it. There's a way you can be that will change him. He can be one when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So when we read this, who, who's the audience then? Is it us? Is this about your marriage and my marriage? I mean, probably not. It's, I mean, if you live in Saudi Arabia, actually there's a good chance that this is about you. The context of this is a woman who is in an oppressive society who is owned by her husband, has no rights, becomes a follower of Christ, and wants her husband to do the same. And now she is being treated in a way that she knows is not just. And so, um, there's, something, there's something you need to realize when, when you read scriptures. And I want you to try to notice it next time you're reading. Um, whenever the scriptures, anyone that's, 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 that's writing scriptures um, addresses 
um, sort of a, a hierarchy. They always speak to the lower one first. And this was unheard of. I mean, the highest, I guess, m- moral um, group in, in first century would be the Stoics. And the Stoics never addressed women or slaves or children or immigrants. They only addressed freed men. Um, because why would they address tools who were owned? That was their mindset. So they would, go to the, they would go to the men and they would say, hey, why don't you treat people a little better? We do this today. We start at the top. We go to the top and we say, hey, you're treating people bad. You're treating people wrong. You need to change. You need to stop treating them this way. The problem is it doesn't change their view of the people under them. It doesn't. And so what the gospels do is they go down and they go to the, they go to the slaves and they say, hey, you are vastly more loved than you actually think you are. And you have vastly more power than you actually think that you have. And I'm going to give you something that's going to, that's going to help. It's going to change things. It's going to take a while, but it's going to change things. Um, and it's going to change things in a peaceful way. And, and you're going to change the, your, your masters. And, he goes to the, and, and the scriptures go to the women. When, you ever notice it talks to slave first, and then it says, and then masters. And then it says, wives, then husbands. Because in the system of the day, that was what they had to work with. And, and, and let me remind you who the first group was that Jesus gathered together and spoke to. Sermon on the Mount. Who was he talking to? Peasants. Poor, just peasants with no hope. Those are the first people he talks to. The Jews expected the Messiah to speak to the king and change the king. But he gave them, the scriptures give the lower rung of societal ladder um, a tool to bring about change. The scriptures always address the person on the lower rungs of the societal ladder because they, they know, they give the people on the bottom power and say, hey, you are actually capable of changing the world in ways that they aren't. And it gives them power. So let's, let's see what it is. He starts here. He says, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. I want to look at the word um, that they may be, they may be one. That's a, it's, that phrase is actually one word. It's kerdino. Thank you. Um, now, just, you know, trying to keep you alive. Um, it means a monetary investment that brings good return. Now, if you take money and you put it in the bank and you keep doing this and you regularly put money into the bank, what do you end up with? A lot of money. Okay. Now, if you know somebody and, and they're not real lovable, like they're empty on the love chart, like their love pressure's low, um, you, and you love them and you keep loving them and you pour love into them and you keep pouring love into them, you know what to become filled with? Love. If you pour grace out on somebody over and over and over and over and over, they eventually become filled with grace. As you love people, they become lovable. People that are very hard to love. We all know some. If you love them and love them and love them, they actually can become lovable people. I've seen this over and over and over. The general idea in the scriptures about how to change people and how to change the world is that we pull because pulling is better than pushing. Pulling is way better than pushing. In other words, you get out in front of it and you do it and you invite them to do this. And you invite and you invite. So there's um, the Great Commission. There's a, there's a line by Jesus, a little sort of paragraph, and we call it the Great Commission. It's the, it's the last thing that Jesus sort of commandment he gave us before the Great Ascension. And he, um, it goes like this. Let's read it real fast. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's so much here 
and I would love to just open this all up and, and go at it, but I'm not going to today. We can't. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I want you to understand the command of God was to go make disciples. Now, the slave wants to make a disciple of his master. The woman who is in this oppressive system of marriage wants to make a disciple of her husband. Why? Because as Christians, you love them. As his wife, she loves him. As, and as his wife, she wants him also to change. And the gospel changes people. And it will make their relationship better. Um, so, ladies, um, when, when your, your guy or your husband or whatever you want to call him, when he serves you from the depths of his heart, when he cleans the house and does the dishes and mops the floor and takes the kids out uh, to the park and asks, what can I do for you? What can I do? Are you working on that? Let me do that for you. Go sit down. And he just serves you. Does that make you view him less? Does it, do you suddenly start going, oh, he's my servant. Sweet. <laughs> Tea, please. No, it doesn't. You actually, when you say, you say things like, I don't, I don't deserve him. You look at me, I don't deserve you. And men, it's the same thing. When, when your girl just, she just serves you just in every way. She's just there. She has, how can I help? What can I do? What can I, what can I do for you? You don't start to look at her and say, sweet, I got a slave. I got a servant. And tell her what to do. No, what happens is you, it humbles you and it lifts them up. And this is how the gospel has always worked. This is what has always typically happened. So Dallas Willard, I mean, we want to make disciples of people. And, and Dallas Willard kind of talks about this. This is um, in the last book that he wrote, Dallas Willard, before he died, he, he, he writes something about this. Um, and he says, it's, it's a perfect description of how to make disciples. You serve them and they see you and they lift you up and then they follow you. So he says this, um, I think the best way of translating this is, as you go, make disciples. The, pr- this presents making disciples as a kind of side effect. And that is really important to understand in relation to making disciples. In life, some things that can be pulled cannot be pushed. And some things that can be pushed cannot be pulled. Making disciples is a matter of pulling people, of drawing them in through who we are and what we say. Disciples are those who have been so ravished with Christ that others want to be like them. Others look at those disciples in the kingdom of God and they say, this is the best thing I ever saw in my life. I must have that. Bingo. That's exactly how it works. Um, oftentimes there's conversations about uh, you know, leadership and business and all this stuff. Um, and, and, and when you talk about that stuff, a lot of times people will put this slide up and I'm, I guess I'm continuing the tradition. Um, so we have the boss on top here. He's pointing. This is, this is a boss. Nobody likes a boss. You point and you say, go, do this. And they're pulling the mission. They're out in front. It's the boss's mission. It's not theirs. The way to really move people, the way to be a real leader and to get people changed, to get people moving in a certain direction, is to get in front, pick up the rope and start pulling and say, come with me, come with me, come with me. There are things that can be pulled that cannot be pushed. There are so many things that cannot be pushed, that must be pulled. Paul says, you want to win your husband? You want him to change? You want him to change? It doesn't happen by you standing up and pushing. The change will happen when you become like Christ. What did Christ do? How did Christ draw you in? Well, he pulled. He served. He, I mean, think about it. 
He stepped in, Jesus stepped into our world. And he ate our food. And he wore our clothes. And he walked with his feet on the ground in our cities. And he washed our feet. And he healed our sick. And he hugged our children. This is what Jesus did. We expect a great world revolutionary leader to kind of face down the kings. That's not what he did. He started at the bottom and he gave everyone at the bottom power by getting below them and serving them. Humble yourself and you will be lifted up. And Jesus showed us how this is done. And how did we respond? We followed him. The whole time he's doing this, he's saying, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And we follow. And it changed society. It turned Christianity into this thing, this mammoth, huge thing that's got some big problems, but it's also got a lot of amazing solutions. And it's got, its roots are good. And she can grow still. And so the oppressed wife would go into the church and, and she would see what she was seeing and she would hear the gospel and she would be energized and, and then she would go out into, um, back into the world and the situation in which she was living in. And he says, let your conduct and your love and your character, let it shine. Love your husband from the depths of your soul if you want to change him and serve him. Rejoice in his successes and, and mourn his failures and be, just be there for him and just, Love, love, love. Fill him with love. Keep investing. Keep investing. Keep investing. Do not give up on your husband. And, and eventually, he may be one without you even saying a word. This tool that, that the disciples were giving these oppressed people was pretty incredible. I mean, the only other alternative is to give them a gun. And that's what we do, tend to do in the world. Oppressed peoples, what do you do? Arm them. What did Jesus do? Well, he gave them spiritual disciplines, like these invisible things that seem to have power somehow and change the world. They do. They changed all of us. There was a time when God pulled. I mean, pushed. When God, there was a time when God pushed. You look at the Old Testament. God gets up and he, and, he, and he lays down the law and he says, here it is. Do it. Be holy. And if you do, I will fulfill my covenant. And they couldn't do it. And they couldn't do it. And they couldn't do it. And they kept failing and failing and failing. And eventually God kind of tells us, what he was doing there by pushing. He was saying, you can't do it on your own. You have no example. You don't know how it's done. And then there came a day when God said, it's time. And God came and submitted himself to us. And he started pulling. And he says, follow me. Come on. I'll show you how this works. And it worked. And so I don't know what your situations are. I know you kind of read this and you're like, well, great. So if this doesn't apply to me today, then you know I'm not under first century Greco-Roman marriage laws, so this doesn't apply to me. Wrong. Um, I guarantee you there's people in your life who need to change, who act to you a certain way, and you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're sort of oppressive, maybe even vaguely, maybe overtly oppressive, and holding you down, and pushing you down, and they're treating you awful. The apostles would say, there is a tool that can change people, and it's called love, and it's not easy, it's very difficult, and it it might take a long time. But you should have it, because you're a follower of Jesus, and that's how Jesus changed you, and it's the only way. The gospel is what changes people, and this is how it works. It's undeserved love. 
God loved you despite what you did to him, and you love them despite what they did to you. That's, that's grace at its core. That's how it works, and it changes people. And so we're going to take communion. And uh, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and, and get ready. Um, communion is a really important thing to us because it is the reminder that we have of the gospel. We come and we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the wine, and we eat it, and we say, I remember. I remember what you did. And this needs to happen regularly. You need to regularly be remembering, especially when people are treating you a certain way in which you would like to respond by standing up and fighting back against them. You would like to respond that way, and so you kind of want to say, I remember the gospel. I remember. I remember what Jesus did for me when I was this way to him. And we all have done that. And so we take the gospel, the, the bread, the, the broken body of Christ, we dip it in the wine, the blood of Christ spilled out for all of us so that we can be reconciled to God. And we eat it, we take it down inside of us, and we say, God, take the gospel into my life, let it touch the places that need to be touched. And that's how it works. And throughout your week, you try to remember, remember, in remembrance of what Jesus did. So let's uh, take some time and have a word of prayer, and then we'll take communion. Father, we love you. We come before you, and we ask for your power, your life-changing, world-altering power that we absolutely need. May it start with our small little kingdoms that we have around us. May it move into our neighborhoods in our city, in our state, in our country, in the world. May we learn that even in a world that is broken, working under oppressive, completely oppressive systems and things that were gifts of you that have been perverted into other things that they should not be, that somehow your gospel can penetrate through all that and change, change people's lives. Thank you. Work in our hearts. Be with us now as we take communion. Help us to repent of the ways that, that we have not lived up to your words. In your name, amen. Let's take some time and talk to Jesus.